0: If you tax people who work and you pay people who don't work, don't be surprised if a lot of people decide not to work.
1: What causes inflation and how bad can
0: things be if hyperinflation takes place in the States? The rich people who have the money taken from them will produce a little less. The poor people who have the money given to them also will produce a little bit less and you'll have a reduction in total income or output. Ten year bond yields are not high. Gold prices have not risen, and the dollar has not been depreciating in the foreign exchanges dramatically, so. What concerns you the most right now? Don't make the benefits so attractive that you cause able-bodied people to stop working, and now these people are not going back in the labor force because it's more attractive being unemployed than it is actually going back to their old jobs. By stealing from the rich, Robinhood literally made the poor worse off, and that is the true story of redistribution. You know, most people don't want to talk taxes, but I'm one of those weird
1: guys that loves talking and learning about taxes, and my guest today is an expert in that area. I've had him on before three years ago in 2018. We're having him back here and again, and that's Dr. Arthur Laffer, former member of President Reagan's and Trump's economic policy advisor. In 2016, he got the presidential, I think you got the awarded with the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his work that he did with the economy. With that being said, Arthur, thank you so much for being a guest on
0: Valuetainment. My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me again.
1: Yeah. So from the last time you and I spoke, you know, the Laffer Curve, you're, uh, I'm driving down here from my uh, place right now. My camera guy, Paul's like, I said, do you know Arthur Laffer? He says, you know, the only place I know Arthur Laffer from is from a movie. I said, which movie? He takes the video. You know which movie he's talking about.
0: Not really, ri- but P- Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's
1: the one he takes out oh, with okay. Ben Stein. He says, do you know, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But to the, to the person who doesn't know, uh, uh, your background and how you became who you became. Arthur, do you mind taking a minute and just kind of giving us your background?
0: Well, I educated Yale University undergraduate, then Stanford, MBA first. And then I switched over to the econ department, got to be, uh, got my PhD in economics, taught at the University of Chicago, uh, taught at USC. Uh, I've been in government. I was a, a George Schultz's right-hand person in 1970 in the White House, um, at first chief economist of the OMB. Uh, when it was formed. And uh, obviously, from then on, over the last 52 years, I've been involved uh, with the Oval Office and the White House and Congress and other governments in Chile and Argentina and in uh, in Britain, uh, all over the world uh, in economics, so political economics. And then I wrote for a long time a lot for The Wall Street Journal. And I've written books and academic stuff and Blah, blah, blah. It's all boring stuff to everyone else except you and me, Patrick.
1: I think it's just important for people to know your background, to give you the credibility when you say Six stuff.
0: kids, 13 grandchildren, four great-grandchildren.
1: Four great-grandchildren.
0: 81, grandchildren. Years old, 81
1: years old. And you're still going. And that's your office. I think I was at your office uh, three years yeah. ago when we came down. There. Is that the same office? Same,
0: same office. Very Same one you were in. In fact, if we turn the camera this way, you can see... Lady Thatcher's picture between Sir Michael Hintzey and my me, and uh, of course, uh, Jerry Brown on the wall here, and the President Trump and Reagan, and you know, all the, the usual characters.
1: So so let's get into it. So what I did is, uh, about a couple months, we had a guest on, friend of mine, Byron Udell, where we started talking about taxes. And then they said, you know, back in the days, taxes were above 90% for nearly three decades. I said, what do you mean three decades? So yeah, top line was three decades you know, Reagan was known for only doing two movies. He'd make his 200 grand and then he wouldn't do a third movie because why would he do it? Because he was only making $6,000 on the third movie, et cetera, et cetera. So I went down there and I started looking at a bunch of stuff with taxes. I did a video on taxes and I got 50, 60 pages of taxes. I watched every and any video I can get my hands on taxes to learn about this. And there's a part of it that was very interesting. And I want to hear your thoughts on this is when, you know, originally the founder of the IRS was Abraham Lincoln. It was during his administration that IRS got started. So he starts it, he says, look, guys, we have the civil war thing. We got to go raise some money. I think they put the taxes up 3% for people making $500 to $10,000. It was some tears that he had, and it was up to 6% for people that were making more than that. But he said, if we pay off the debt that we've accrued from civil war, we're going to stop paying Collecting taxes, income ordinary income taxes. Well, ten years later, they stopped having ordinary income taxes and kind of went away. And then comes the next round, which is, hey, let's do it again. And hey, uh, you know, we're going to just raise taxes because we have to pay for World War One, World War Two. But ordinary income taxes never went away. So Arthur, why is ordinary income tax still around today?
0: Uh, you've got me. But it really was a. We had the uh, the Sixteenth Amendment, I believe it was was a. Uh Under Taft was passed by all the states and then by Congress. And so it allowed for a progressive income tax. I believe uh, the uh, US Supreme Court really knocked it down at least once, maybe twice. And uh, this one just made it so it had a constitutional amendment that made it constitutional. In 1913, it was done by Wilson, President Wilson. The highest rate was 7%. I think there were, I think there were, uh, uh, 400,000 total taxpayers at that time. Very, very small group of people. It stayed at 7%, the highest rate for the next two years. So three years at 7%, then it went to 15%. Then it went to 77% in, in 1918. And then it started back down in 1919, uh, 73%, where I think it stayed for three years at 73%, 1919, 1920, 1921. And then it tumbled down to the 25% range and then popped right back up with Hoover. He took it up from uh, 25% to 63%. Then Roosevelt took it up to 79%. Uh, By 1945, the highest marginal income tax rate was 94%, where it stayed for a long, long time. And then in 1981, when the skies cleared, the sun shone forth in the earth, the animals multiplied, the trees bore fruit, the fields turned green, Ronald Reagan brought that rate way down to 28%. And since then, it's it, between 81 and today, it's been uh, about 20, about a little less than 40% the whole time. Uh, the first couple of years, it dropped quickly, but about four, little less than 40% in the years from 1943, when we had a comprehensive income tax till 1981, uh, I think the average rate was about 81% at the top. So you've had two distinct periods uh, a very high tax rate period that was for a long time, I mean, 30, 38 years, and then you have a very low one for a long time, which is about 40 years, something like that from 1981 to the present. Uh, and uh, those are the two big periods, but we have a lot of bobbles and wiggles in the middle, but, I, but I'm pretty familiar with all those moves and I've got a book coming out shortly, which is Taxes Have Consequences, which I'm co-authoring with Gene Sinkfield, uh, and, uh, and Brian Dimitrovic, both of them PhDs. So, uh, we we've got a really good book coming out on that and so, explains what the history is of high taxes.
1: I, I'm looking forward to, and it's, it's fascinating the fact that you can just spit out those numbers as if like you, you know, you got a computer in your head, which many people would say you do, but going back to it, going back to it, was ordinary income tax ever created to stick around, or was it just there to raise money, pay off the debt, and we don't have it anymore until another war happens, or was it supposed to be permanent from day one?
0: Well, it, it, for a lot of people, it was supposed to be permanent from day one. In fact, they had tried to get it earlier after Lincoln got rid of it, but Lincoln got rid of it under a threat, by the way, just so you know, that the Supreme Court did uh, question the validity of the income tax, uh, and uh, he did pull that tax out, quite rightly, rightly so. But then they wanted to have an income tax in there in the early uh, 1900 period, and that was knocked down. Uh, it wasn't until we got the 19th, uh, 16th Amendment that really allowed the income tax. And a lot of people at that time wanted it to be permanent. The initial income tax in 1913 did not contemplate World War I. It didn't. Uh, it wasn't until 1917, 1918 that they really pushed it way up. Now, uh, in 1916, uh, they, they pushed it up Uh, to 15 percent with an inkling of a war coming on. But uh, bottom line is it was there basically to uh, to make sure that the rich, the very, very rich, the top really very small percentage paid a lot of the income taxes. And it was still a small source of revenue for the whole government.
1: So you'll see you'll see a lot of people uh, on uh, more on the AOC camp will say things like What's the big deal if we take the top line for the highest income bracket to 90%? We've done it before. We did it for 30 years. Or, you know, if we've done it before, why can't we do it again? It's not like anybody else is going to be affected by it, but the only rich who are already making so much money. Why should they keep all their money? It's the infrastructure that helped them make this money. What is your argument to them?
0: Well, I don't mean to make an argument to them. The question is their facts, I think, are really incorrect. I mean, when we raised taxes in nineteen nineteen to uh, 1918 to 77%, and then lowered those tax rates down. Now this is just on the rich that I talked about. Mm-hmm. From 77 percent to 25 percent, revenues really increased dramatically. The economy improved. It was the go go, the go go, the roaring twenties. As you know, what we have found is that when you raise the highest rate, number one, revenues go down. Number two, the rich are damaged. Uh, number three, to the extent that they're not damaged, they shelter their income. All right. And four, the lower income groups are hurt and total tax revenues drop. And the taxes on the lowest group, the bottom 50%, actually rise with high tax rates on the rich. Let me go. you want to go through that again? No, I, I no,
1: I want you, I want you to unpack that because I want the audience let to me, understand. Let me, that. let me
0: unpack the first part with you because it's really important. From 1943 until 1981, all right, what is that? That's 38 years, something like that. Yep. The highest tax rate averaged a little about 81%, something like that, a very high tax period. And without Kennedy, it'd be much higher. Uh, Averaged about 81% during that period. Uh, Revenue growth from the top 1% of income earners was a little bit higher than 1.5% per annum, all right, during that period. And the economy grew slowly. From 1981 to the present, the average tax rate has been a little bit. Uh, has been a little bit less than forty percent throughout the whole period, uh, and also revenues grew at over four and a half percent during that period versus one and a half percent the previous one. And taxes from the rich, the top one percent as a share of GDP, soared, while taxes from the bottom fifty percent, not bottom ninety five percent, declined dramatically during that period. So, I, in any way you want to cut it. Raising taxes on the rich do hurt the rich. They cause tax sheltering. They cause the poor to be worse off. The economy to be much poorer as well. And they don't collect the money. But other than that, it's really a great idea, Patrick. So, just look, gently, so just as
1: gently. as of course as as simple as that sounds, the way you put it. How come? How come there is seventy million Americans that disagree with you? How come? How come? Maybe it's not disagree with you. Why is it so hard to get the other seventy mil, million to see the data and say? That makes sense rather than saying, let's just raise a tax on everybody.
0: I don't know. I mean, maybe it's much easier to be an accountant than it is to be an economist. You would think if you raise taxes on the rich, if they don't change their behavior, they'll pay more. And they're they're so rich, they can afford it. Well, I have a story to tell. If you if you if you have a minute, go for it. I, I will tell you my make believe story of Robin Hood. That uh, I introduce economic it takes about three minutes or four minutes something. Go like, for it. You know, Robin Hood would wake up in the morning, and you know, this is uh, your mom telling you the story. Robin Hood stole from the rich and he gave to the poor. He made the poor better off. He was a hero, made the rich worse off, but they could afford it. You remember the story? Of course. Well, the story starts off with Robin Hood in Nottingham. He and his get band of merry men. They don their light green leisure suits. You know the curly toed shoes, the hats with a feather in them, and they they go running out to the trans forest throughway. And when a richie would come by, I mean, a really richie, this guy didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. This guy had a golden goblet in his throat. All right. Right there. They would jump out of the bushes on him. They'd steal everything the guy had. They'd let him run naked out of the forest back to his castle. But don't worry. uh, That guy has so much left of the castle. He can afford it and do that. If a guy came through the forest, was doing really well, but not a super richie. They'd take a large chunk of what he had, but not all of it. If a normal, everyday average merchant came through the forest, they'd just take a token from that guy. In in the vernacular of the modern-day society, Patrick, uh, they had a progressive stealing structure from the merchants when they came through the forest. You you with me? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, Robin Hood and his band of merry men would go running back into Nottingham. They'd wander the streets of Nottingham. If they found some guy who was down out, some guy with nothing, I mean, just nothing, they'd give him a whole pile of goodies. If they found an ordinary sort of working poor guy, they give him a smaller bundle of goodies. You know, the more you make, the less they give you. The less you make, the more they give you. If you found a normal, everyday, average citizen walking along the streets in Nottingham, what they do is say, hi, my name's Robin Hood. I want to tell you I'm the local redistribution station around here. I just want you to know we love you. Here's five bucks. Take the wife out to dinner. Have a good time. It's on me. And by the way, if they bumped into someone rich in Nottingham, they just might steal from him too, okay? Now, that's the story. Now, let me just imagine bring economics back into your life, all right? This is gonna now become, instead of a moral story, an economic story. Imagine you were a merchant back in the ancient days of Nottingham. How long would it take you to learn not to go through the forest? One trip maybe? One trip that's all it those merchants yep. those merchants who were really rich with the golden gobbets in the throat uh-huh. they, they were armed guards to take them through the forest now we call those armed guards today lawyers accountants deferred income specials lobbyists favor grabbers all of that stuff but they were really hell of expensive back then as they are now the merchants who couldn't have formed the armed guards they'd go around the forest now the route around the forest to trade was full of rocks bumps logs holes etc it cost them a lot more to trade with the neighboring villages it increased the cost of trade dramatically, both the armed guards and the circuitous routes around there. So they had to sell their products at higher prices. At the end of the day, Robin Hood had no contraband whatsoever because all the guys were so heavily armed, he couldn't rip them off. He went back into Nottingham with nothing in his hands to give the poor, the disenfranchised at all. And they had to face much higher prices by stealing from the rich. Robin Hood literally made the poor worse off. And that is the true story of redistribution. Wow. Uh, and that is what exactly happens in this society today. Now, I try to tell that story because I think it's pretty understandable, isn't it, Patrick?
1: Very simple. Uh, 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 the challenge isn't about how simple it is. The challenge is uh, what what method needs to be taken for the other side to say, "Okay, this kind of makes sense." In this part, raising taxes is well, not going to be the solution. Let me let me ask you. I've yeah. got the data. I've got the
0: data. I mean, they can they can duplicate the data.
1: Has the Biden administration at all reached out to you, or no?
0: No.
1: Okay, Uh, what do you think about the tax plan that they are proposing currently right now?
0: Well, I'm not really sure of what it is and what it's going to be completely, but I think they want to raise the income tax rate to 40 percent. I think they want to raise the capital gains tax rate to 43 percent. I think they want to raise the corporate rate from 21 to 28 percent. These are the things and they've got a gas tax and they've got other deductions, exemptions and exclusions they want to eliminate and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, If they did that, uh, I think it would be basically a reversing the Trump tax cuts of 2017. And as such, those tax cuts extended the boom for quite some time. They led to much lower unemployment rate of the poor, the minority, the disenfranchised record lows, a record low in U.S. poverty measures. So uh, and also the tax revenues rose as a result of the Trump tax bills. I mean, the two years after Trump's tax bill had a faster growth in revenue than did the two years before or the four years to two years before. So there was an acceleration in revenue growth on the federal government. Now, not in corporate taxes. OK, duh. I have to say that to everyone. No, corporate taxes went down, but all the other taxes went up as a result of the corporate taxes going down. And if they reversed it, I think they'd get the, the, the reverse results. And I think it would be damaging to the country.
1: Who would take the biggest hit? Would it be more the employer, the employee, the, the middle America? Who would take the biggest hit?
0: I, I don't really know who would, but my guess is it's always the poor, the minority, disenfranchised. The people on the lowest echelon of the ladder uh, almost always are the ones fired first. I mean, Benjamin Hooks put it very clearly, Patrick, and I, I quote him. He was head of the NAACP, if you'll remember. And he said, Blacks are hired last and fired first. The only way we're ever going to get jobs and keep those jobs is if there's so damn many jobs required that we get employed and never get laid off. And I think if you have a slowdown in this economy, you're going to have it hit the minorities and the poor uh, inner city dwellers, those people living in the hollows of Kentucky, much more than other people.
1: Arthur, you've been studying economy for how long now? I mean, you gave your age to everybody. How long would you say you've studied? I, I would assume you're reading all the books that are out there. How long have you been studying economy?
0: Oh, probably 50 years, 50 years, five years.
1: So from your experience, what causes inflation? Because right now you're hearing a lot of talks. Market crash was last year. Hey, it's coming. It's coming. You're hearing Michael Burry talk about the biggest market crash is coming. He came back on Twitter and finally said it again, I think last week. But you're hearing more talks right now about inflation. Um, What causes inflation and how bad can things be if hyperinflation takes place in the States?
0: Yeah, let me start out about the cause of inflation. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal, 1974, which was the bitter fruits of devaluation. The US dollar had devalued and gone off gold. And by that, we devalued against other countries' currencies, I forecast double digit inflation. I was criticized roundly at the time. And the double digit inflation did come because we devalued the currency versus the numeraire, which is gold uh, and the other countries. Uh, we don't have anything like that today. Uh, my view is that that model I used back then no longer is applicable because we aren't pegged to gold. We aren't pegged to other currencies at all. Um, what you will see of course, is if inflation does hit, it will show up in the U S dollar, which is not falling. It will show up at the 10 year bond yield, which is not rising. And it will show up in gold prices, which are not rising. So all today, I mean, Patrick, very seriously, uh, I don't see any reason why uh, specifically uh, we should expect higher inflation in the near term. 10 year bond yields are not high, gold prices have not risen and, uh, and the dollar has not been depreciating in the foreign exchanges dramatically. So I am not currently terribly panicked about inflation but if inflation were to come back, it would have no constraints. There's no reserve requirement constraints that would hold that inflation back. So my thought right now is I don't see inflation on the horizon. Uh, but if it were to come, there are no constraints operating out there that would stop it. What yeah, I hope that's okay. Uh, as no, an no,
1: I'm curious. You know. You're the brains here with this. This is your yeah. world. I want to learn from I, you. I'm wrong a lot
0: of times, Patrick. That's totally so, fine.
1: Yeah, I want to hear your perspective. I, but so, never
0: deliberately. So, so what causes gold to go up? What causes gold to go up? gold is the first refuge of the cautious. Okay. Uh, You know, when things are going bad, people move to gold because it's high valuable, easily assailable. Uh, Over the centuries, it has been the one go-to thing in times of crisis. Uh, In the 1970s, everyone went into gold. And of course you had the price of gold go from $35 an ounce to $900 an ounce. Uh, You know, in the 1930s, everyone went into gold, but gold was fixed in value. So the price level dropped dramatically. The reason the price level dropped dramatically is because the real value of gold had to increase. So uh, when you look at gold, it is the first refuge of the cautious. And so far there's not been a a run, a rush into gold. It just hasn't happened. So so that doesn't mean it won't.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and there was a minute it did, but then it was back down to a normal range that it was at. Well, what's, what's your biggest concern? Like if, if, if I'm speaking with you off camera, we're talking, I'm saying, listen, Arthur, you know, there's a lot of stuff you're hearing on the news right now market crash, you know, inflation, you know, uh, uh, regulation, you know, all this, the taxes. What concerns you the most right now?
0: Financial. Well, there, there, there are a bunch of things. That, I mean, obviously, these tax things bother me a great deal, Patrick. I mean, I, I think we, we're in a bad situation in taxes. I think this deficit spending is crazy. I mean, you know, when you have, uh, when you have, uh, uh, Huge transfer payments. L- l- can I go through transfers with you a little bit slowly? And, sure. you know, when you transfer, when you, you're transferring income, you take from someone who has a little bit more and you give to someone who has a little bit less. Mm-hmm. You with me on that? Yeah. That, that's what really is redistribution or transfer sure. payment there. Now, whenever you take from someone who has a little bit more, you reduce that person's incentives to produce. And that person will produce a little bit less. Okay. Likewise, when you give to someone who has a little bit less, uh, that person finds an alternative source of income other than working for receiving income. So that person too will produce a little bit less. He can make money by not working, Um, all right? The the theorem here is really simple. Whenever you redistribute income, whenever you do, you always reduce total income, always. It's not a debate. The rich people who have the money taken from them will produce a little less. The poor people who have the money given to them also will produce a little bit less and you'll have a reduction in total income or output. To see it really clearly, if you tax people who work and you pay people who don't work, don't be surprised if a a lot of people decide not to work. All right, now the lemma from this theorem theorem is delicious. Uh, And and the lemma is very simply is uh, the more you redistribute, the greater will be the decline in total income. And that should be self-evident from the theorem itself. So at the limit function of this theorem, I, I just delight in uh, because it's so clear. And this is just math. It's nothing else. It's not left-wing, it's not right-wing, it's not liberal, it's not conservative or Republican. It's just plain math. The, the, the limit theorem is if you were able to redistribute all income so that everyone came out exactly the same, Patrick, if everyone came out exactly the same, there will be no income whatsoever. And let me hit that intuitively to you. Uh, To get everyone to come out the same, what you have to do is tax everyone who earns above the average income 100% of the excess. And what you also have to do is everyone below the average income, you have to subsidize them up to the average income. Now, if you actually did that, if you actually taxed everyone above the average income 100% and actually subsidize everyone below the average income up to the average income, I'll stipulate today, counselor. Um, there, there, there. Everyone will come out exactly the same at zero income. That's what bothers me a lot. We've increased government spending through these, uh, through these "quote unquote" stimulus packages, incredibly, hard, and it's working very much to the detriment of this economy in this country. My view.
1: Arthur, how, how do you view, uh, you know, you've been around when there was no crypto and then it barely came and people kind of like, well, what's this all about? And then now a lot of people who were not, uh, you know, believers and they were doubters now are becoming believers. They're saying, you know what, I don't think this thing's going away. What's your position with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin?
0: I think you're probably right. <laughs> I, I, I do. I did a podcast with Kathy Wood. Now, you may know who Kathy Wood is. She was my student at the University of Southern California, and I'm involved with her in Arc as well. We did a podcast, I think four or five years ago on, on Bitcoin. I think it was Bitcoin. we did it on but cryptocurrencies in general. And my general view is that while they may not be a substitute for the transactions medium called money, uh, they sure are, uh, they sure are a medium for the wealth concept of money. Uh, you know, I think that cryptocurrencies for sure, and Bitcoin, for sure, is a replacement for, let's say, gold, which I talked about with you earlier. I think they, this is a synthetic gold that, uh, frankly, will uh, satisfy some of the needs that the gold market does. Got it. OK. Uh, I think uh, it's here to stay. I mean, I don't. Think it's not
1: going there. away. Now, are you, are you in it? Are you somebody that's a believer to the
0: point where you're putting your money where your mouth is and you're investing as well or not yourself? Well, let me just say, to the extent I have an equity interest in Arc, which is the Kathy Wood Company, which I do, uh, then I am. But separately, no, I'm not a personal investor. I'm just an old man, Patrick. I mean, I'm 81 years old. I have cryptocurrencies, I don't even, I don't even have a a computer. I don't do emails. I have a flip phone. I mean, you know, how can I do cryptocurrencies? Come on. I, I, but I love them. I love them. You
1: love them, but but. Uh, so- so, so how, 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 do you like, you know, there's a, there's a guy named Anthony Pompliano pump on Twitter. He's a big tw- uh, Bitcoin guy, massive voice. He's, he's everywhere. Everybody's interviewing. We had him on a couple months ago. Great guy. Good conversation with him. He called out Warren Buffett. And he says, you know, these guys are not outdated. You know, he's uh, Warren Buffett is going out there and, you know, they have to kind of comment on Bitcoin. What's going to happen all this other stuff. W- what are your thoughts? Like when you were coming up, who was the person when you were thirty-five years old, coming up with ideas, and these eighty-year-olds were saying Arthur has no clue what the hell he's talking about. He's lost his mind. We're around. We have experience. We know what we're saying. How did you at thirty-five, you the eighty-year-old that criticized your ideas?
0: Well, you know, at thirty-five, I was a huge fan of Bob Mundell's, who very recently passed away. We did the global stuff. Now our world was a very different world than the world today. But Bob Mundell and I both believe that money was global in scope, not uh, country in scope. We both believe very much in a sound price rule, the gold standard, not some sort of a monetary-based standard as, as as exists in the 70s and 80s. Uh, we also believe very much in the power of cutting tax rates. Now, when we argued our stuff in well 1930, when I was 35, that was 1975, uh, I had done my big Kemp Roth tax cut already across the board, which brought the highest rate down to 35% Everyone said I was crazy, not only politically, but economically. It was crazy, weird. Bob Mundell, of course, was right there at the time. And we were were pilloried by everyone. But lo and behold, it happened. And you can see what happened. He had the greatest boom ever with Ronald Reagan. And the price level tumbled. Uh, Inflation stopped immediately after Jimmy Carter. And the dollar soared in the foreign exchange market. And, you know, as I said, The animals multiplied, the children danced in the streets.
1: (laughs) Do do, do you think certain principles uh, economically are evergreen that are always going to be around? Or do you think almost every philosophy is changing because we're living in times we've never seen before? I mean, things are technologies moving rapidly, decentralized systems. You know, you're talking about, you know, crypto, NFT. It's almost like there's so much to take in where some of the way of thinking in 1970 may not apply today or no. It's evergreen. Many of those apply still today.
0: Well, obviously, the specifics are, are brand new. I mean, you know, we had our technologies back in the 1970s. We had our technologies back in the 1920s. These are new technologies. I mean, all sorts of things are happening. Uh, and I told you, tax rates are very different now than they were in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. So that these are all different things. But the principles, I think, are pretty much the same. Now, Uh, You know, very simply, people respond to incentives. And if you make something attractive through regulatory policy or through spending programs or whatever, they'll do more of it. If you make something unattractive through taxes or through regulatory policy, they'll do less of it. So the government can, through the manipulation of incentives, change the results that occur in the economy. And unfortunately, they don't understand it. They're not very well educated. They're not very well motivated. And as a result, they make things a lot worse They've made the poverty situation in America a lot worse. The minimum wage at $15 an hour would hurt, hurt the poor, the minority, the disenfranchised the most. It would just destroy their futures and their lives. But, you know, they they really are into politics more than they are humanitarian efforts. Why, why would it destroy their lives? Well, because you get some of these people who who just don't have the requisite skills at present. They're young, they're not well-educated. They they haven't had the experience of internships and all that. And they can't get that first job at $15 an hour. After being unemployed for a year or two, sooner or later they become unemployable, Patrick. And then after being unemployable for years, they become frustrated and angry. And then you have to spend a fortune protecting yourself from them. You know, you've created this underculture of underemployed, poverty-stricken people who who are not sharing in the prosperity that you and I have. And, and, you know, they have just the rights to it as we do. I mean, they're human beings too. It's only that the government has kept them down. I mean, we have welfare payments, Patrick, that are withdrawn once they hit a certain level. So, you know, if you took out, now this is four years ago data, a single mother with two children in Philadelphia making $29,000 a year income. If you take out all the taxes in that $29,000, so you have her net income there, Then you add in the economic value of all of the social welfare spending she's eligible for. You get the total amount she is, which is a little over $53,000. Now, if that woman goes from $29,000 to $79,000 income, read, because the taxes go up so much and because all the welfare benefits drop so much, she's literally the same way off uh, at at, uh, $79,000 as she was at $29,000. And you know, it's 100% tax rate on our earnings. That's called a welfare poverty trap. So you combine those two things, the minimum wage and that, and you've created a massive enterprise zone destruction package on the poor, the minorities, the disenfranchised, and it just disgusts me to the core. And what we need to do is have tax-free zones in our country for 15 years. Anyone locating the enterprise zone whose principal residence is there, who's got a job in the enterprise, no income tax, no payroll tax, nothing. Minimum wage uh, abolished in that area until they get back up on their feet and get going. And then they have the requisite skills to become productive members of our society. But, you know, Patrick, when you look at the income tax codes, 70,000 pages and all this stuff, you need to have a lawyer. You need to have an accountant. You need to have a deferred income special. You need to have a favor grabber. You need to have lobbyists. You need to have all those to make it. Some guy in the inner city or wherever, you know, tr- just as a simple b- basketball player, comes out there. Great basketball player, makes a lot of money, but doesn't know how to do the the gimmicks and tricks of the uh, of the of the tax codes, and he's just hammered down. And that's why you find all these guys once they retire, they go right into poverty. Mm. And you know that's just wrong, wrong, wrong for us in society to do that.
1: So you're and, not, you're not for minimum wage raising minimum oh. wage. And are you? Do you believe automation is coming, coming here and it's already here, but even at the highest level, like automation is coming?
0: Well, auto, automa, automation comes in because of the minimum wage. I and mean, if you go to McDonald's and some of these other places, they have these little screens now that you pop there. They have hamburger flipping things that can flip 60 hamburgers at a time. And they're done perfectly. They've got all these other. Have you seen these new robots? Uh, They go around delivering packages all over the place without a person. That's all because of the minimum wage being so damn high that it's worthwhile for them to technologically replace these low-wage workers and make sure they never do anything. If there weren't a minimum wage, these kids would get fine jobs at $10 an hour. They'd be there, they'd be doing this, and they'd soon work their way up to higher wages. But nope, that's not what our society is doing for them.
1: So you are saying automation is inevitable because these companies have to figure out a way to save money. So we just invested. We just invested into software. Took us two years to build. All in five million dollars. It helped us. It, it helped us not need ten jobs that we currently have right now because the software is doing it automatically. Right. So, but do you think automation is happening whether they raise the minimum wage or not? Wouldn't the company do well, autom- automate? Automate no matter what.
0: Well, to some extent, but no. The automation if you raise the minimum wage. That incentivizes you to automate in that area. Uh, You know, in other areas that you have high paid workers, uh, you automate there because you're saving the money of those high paid workers. Well, there's a shortage of those people, but there's not a shortage of low wage workers. And so what you want to make sure you do is that the automation is tilted towards places where there is a uh, where there's a shortage of high paid workers and not to the people who desperately need jobs, Patrick. And. That's what they've done is the minimum wage puts a government bounty on on low wage workers to make sure that companies that would hire them now use automation.
1: So 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 then are you also uh, if we're saying automation is no matter what coming, we're there automation, no matter what is coming. Let's just say minimum wages, you know, it is what it is. Pick a number, leave it there. Uh, Are you also, you know, the the one word that created a lot of uh, momentum this last time around was UBI. You kept hearing out UBI, 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 UBI with Andrew Yang. And then he says, well, Milton Friedman tried to do it. He talked about UBI, even though he was, Milton Friedman's idea was negative. You know, it was a complete different system. You kind of briefly talked about it today. he says, well, MLK wanted to do this. What's wrong with us doing UBI, right? If automation is inevitable and we're going in that direction, do you think UBI is also inevitable?
0: You know, the basic income concept where you give a payment will hurt jobs, output, and employment. That is not my way of solving the world. Uh, what I would not do, and let me just say it really explicitly, Patrick, uh, Milton Friedman's minimum wage, the UBI, all of these say if you earn higher incomes, you get taxed on that from the base level on. That is a disincentive all the way there. Uh, I would, What I would do very simply is I'd do a low rate broad-based flat tax. just like I did for Jerry Brown when he ran for president in 1992. you replace all federal income taxes, all federal taxes of all sorts with two low rate uh, low rate broad-based taxes. You want the lowest rate to provide people with the least incentives to evade or void or otherwise not report taxable income and you want the broadest base so they have the least places they can stick their income and thus avoid paying taxes. If you replaced all federal taxes with two low rate broad-based uh, tax, one on value added or what Republicans call uh, business net sales, and one on personal unadjusted adjusted gross income, so it's on the first dollar to the last dollar, you could match all federal revenues today, all of them, with two flat rate taxes on 12, of 12%, no payroll taxes, No Medicare, no Medicaid, no uh, excise taxes, no corporate taxes, no personal income taxes, no capital gains taxes, no death taxes, all federal taxes gone except for sin taxes, which are a teeny tiny portion. All of that could be replaced by this without even assuming a Laffer curve. I mean, that's what Jerry Brown ran down. We went from eighth in the race in the Democratic primary in 92 to second in the race. And I think we would have won the race if if Jerry hadn't picked his vice president the way he did. Uh, if we did that, I mean you would have that lower rate. Can you imagine you pay you're paid 100 bucks, Patrick, and uh, what you have to do is send in87 uh, send in 13 uh, bucks and you get to keep 87. Or better yet, your employer gives you 87 and they send in 13 before you. You don't even have to file a tax return for goodness sakes. I mean, that's what we should have as taxes. So we have a complete if you want to help people who don't have income who are in some sense dire circumstances, okay? write him a check. You know, what does, a, what does an income tax credit do to a mother with kids who doesn't file a tax return? Nothing. You know, what you want to do is write them a check so they get the check clear and you're not confusing the tax system with a spending system.
1: What was the biggest pushback Jerry got when, he, when you guys pitched that uh, tax plan?
0: Well, the only pushback we got was we kept getting better and better and better in the votes. I mean, we came in with the second most number of delegates in the Democratic primary with a flat tax. Huh? How's that for cool? And he would have won three weeks out of the New York. Prim- we just won the Connecticut wow. primary and we just won the Oregon primary. We are coming into New York and California and he announces Jesse Jackson as his running mate. Eep, it stopped. But, you know, look, at, that's Jerry Brown. I mean, I love the guy dearly, uh, but he loves to stir the pot. Uh, but we still got the second most number of delegates in the Democratic primary with a complete flat tax, not with a UBA, not with a negative income tax, with a, just a flat rate tax. And then when you want to help someone, write him a damn check.
1: You're familiar with Jordan Peterson? No. Jordan Peterson is, uh, uh, you know, wrote a book, 12 Rules for Life, very renowned author. He was a clinical psychologist at University of Toronto, he, he became... He oh, I high, have heard of him. Okay. Yes, I
0: have. I've watched him on TV yes. once. He's really pretty amazing. Fascinating I, I guy. Remember.
1: Genius. Yeah. Brilliant guy. People people love uh, the way he thinks and what he says about it. So one of the things he talks about, he says about 10% of America has an IQ below 83, which is a net negative to society, right? About 10% of America's got a IQ less than 83. Net negative to society. So we're talking about, you know, fiscal responsibility, great. You know, hey, take care of your money, go to work, take make you, you know, save your money, put it on a Roth, put it in an IRA, put it away, you know, match the 401k, whatever, take care of your family. Some people are saying that there is a 10% that no matter how we set up the economy, that 10% is not going away. Meaning if there's that 1% at the top, that's going to find a way to make their millions. And then there's a 1% of the 1% that's going to be billionaires. The same way is the bottom 10% that no matter what you do with taxes, there's going to be 10% of people that are going to need to help uh, to have the government or an organization help them out. So what, what, how do you process that where we have to be fiscally responsible? Yes, but there is a small percentage of community that maybe doesn't have the capability as others are what some of these experts are uh, uh, implying. What are your thoughts on that where we have to also be socially responsible to take care of those folks?
0: I do agree with it 100%. I mean, you know, I am completely in accord with helping those who can't help themselves. And I'm not only help them, but, you know, we as a society just can't afford to allow these people to live in pain and suffering. It's just not right. But now what you want to make sure, Patrick, and it's a balancing act here, is you want to make sure that you don't make the benefits, the social welfare benefits so attractive that you cause people to become poor, because they get paid for being poor now what I would do in this sort of thing is uh, I, I would surely have a soup kitchens housing for the people who really you know the people living under bridges and all that stuff just give them physical things that they desperately need and want and have it there I'd love I would have a health clinics for the poorest uh, but that's it I mean that's pretty much what you do to them uh, if you have any institutions that these people are are doing self-harm they're can be you know all of those things to protect our society. I would really encourage uh, religious organizations and other groups to make sure they step in as well. But you know, uh, you don't want to kill everything to help the one. And that's what you really got to make sure. You don't make the benefits so attractive that you cause able-bodied, good, productive people to stop working and now do. You've seen that with the $300 unemployment benefits that extended additional unemployment benefits. These people are not going back in the labor force because it's more attractive being unemployed than it is actually going back to their old jobs. That is when welfare state has gone crazy. But I have nothing whatsoever against helping those who can't help themselves and and doing it in the most generous fashion possible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just how we go about doing that, you know. And, and it's tough. Ways, you know, yeah. it's a it's a tough call. You say 83 IQ. I don't think I would use that, by the way. I don't think I'd use the IQ measure at all because, you know, some people with low IQs are damn great at calculating and raising their own kids and all that stuff. I mean, I watched Tom Hanks and uh, what was it? Uh, Saving was Private it? Ryan or which one and are you talking no, about? No, no, no. The, uh, the, the movie. What was the movie? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Yeah. I raising the kid there I mean he did made it for no, yeah you four scumbags in private round yeah, yeah four scum. I, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't always just assign a characteristic cuz you see these people can really do well but what you want to do is watch and maintain and make sure that 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 doesn't go to where the per- people are living in harm I means pain and suffering that's just not what we're about.
1: You know years ago uh, late 70s you were working on some policies I think it was Prop 13 in California when it was the, uh, uh, was it a property tax or something like that? Yes, it was, property tax limit, yes. What approach, so what was it and what approach did you take to drastically change the property taxes in California in 78?
0: Well, I first place didn't do the proposition that was done by Paul Gann and Howard Jarvis. It was called the Jarvis Gann Initiative. It was their fourth or fifth attempt. And when I read about it, I did my analysis of supply set economics. The property taxes at that time were 2.7% of market value, Patrick. And uh, what the Prop 13 would do was drop it to 1%. So there'd be a huge cut in property tax rates. And I thought this would be extremely attractive to bring businesses back into California jobs, You know, the poor and the minorities in California don't move to, let's say, Tennessee to get jobs. If the jobs don't come into California, they don't get the jobs. So I argued that the jobs would flow into California, prices of housing would rise, that incomes would rise, that the welfare payments would fall so dramatically because people would have jobs locally that it would actually, in due course, pay for itself, which took it a year and a half to completely pay for itself. I also talked with the then governor, uh, the one I was just talking about a minute ago, Jerry Brown. I went up and he called me and asked me to come up to Sacramento. I came up and spent three days with him in Sacramento on how to implement Prop 13 to make it work. Jerry Brown was just spectacular. He and his cabinet were just spectacular. And what they did was they did subventions. Now, property taxes only impacted, only impacted cities, counties, and local districts. The state did not have a property tax. It had an income tax and had all these others, but not that. So what he did was he subvened, Five billion dollars of state funds to the cities, counties, and local districts to make sure that they didn't have a shortage of police, fire, libraries, schools—all of that stuff. He made damn sure that happened. It did a great job, and we pulled through it. And in the next decade, we were the fastest-growing state in the nation. Uh, our property values more than doubled relative to the rest of the nation. Unemployment rate just tumbled in California, and we just prospered as never before. We grew by a tire Massachusetts. In that ten years, that next ten years, it really worked, and I'm. That's one of the things I'm really very proud of. Even though I didn't author that thing, it was just a great idea, and I'm so glad I came out and supported it. And I think it really made for a period of prosperity in California, unparalleled on this planet. Well,
1: good for you for giving credit to something you're saying you were you didn't write. So, so you talk. You just mentioned California. When I was with you in Tennessee, I think at that time, they were saying the lowest all-in taxes in all of America, out of all the 50 states, is Tennessee. Tennessee was number one. When I was visiting, it was- Lowest. To number lowest. Lowest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Meaning the yeah, best yeah, the best to be in, yep. the best climate yep. to be in, right? And yep. at the time, California was the highest. I think New York is now the highest. I think New York just passed California with the $4.3 billion bill that just passed. Wonderful victory. But, but here's, a, here's a question for you. So COVID, I lived in LA 24 years, minus the time I was in the military, you know, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Hunter, first. but I was in California 24 years. I was in Dallas for five years and I've been in Florida now for five months. I'm moving in Florida. I have one of my companies I kept in Dallas and I got another company I'm running right now that's in Florida. During the pandemic, we saw a lot of moving parts. We saw how California policies were pushing people out of California. A bunch of names, I don't need to give them to you. You've read them, you know them. And the list will be a long list. Whether a lot of the folks from California, if they could, they move their business to Nevada, no state, no state taxes, or they moved straight up to Texas because it's a better business-friendly place. And you saw a lot of people from New York, DC, all Connecticut moving to Florida. And now a lot of guys are saying, "I'm not moving back to New York. I kind of like staying in uh, Florida." Here, from your experience, you said fifty years you've been studying economy. Has Florida always been Florida? Has Texas always been Texas, where it's a pro business friendly place. Or did California used to be
0: Texas and New York used to be Florida, and they flipped? I don't know if you understand the question I'm asking. I know I got the question. Let, Let me just say that relative tax rates have always attracted to people to the lower states, lower tax states from the higher tax. That's always been true. And let me, if you have two locations, A and B, sure. If you raise taxes in B and you lower them in A people and jobs and producers and income will move from B to A. That that will happen. California had a huge advantage in the 60s. I mean, I moved there in the 60s because of the huge advantages that California had on all sorts of job prospects growth. It was where the earth began. Uh, but as the years have gone on, uh, tax rates have become much, much more important as to how they do it now. There have been 11 states that introduced the income tax since 1960. Those 11 states started in 1961 with West Virginia. It ended up with Connecticut in 1991. You know, it had states like Rhode Island and Maine and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Indiana and Ohio and Illinois and Michigan and Nebraska. All of them put in the income tax. All of those states that introduced an income tax have declined dramatically relative to the rest of the nation. I mean, dramatically. Uh, It's still nine states in the U.S. have no income tax, no earned income tax. We just got rid of our earned income tax, and the and the states with no income tax way outperformed those that have the highest income taxes. I guess the
1: the question I was asking you is: so originally, when New York and California became New York and California, what attracted everybody to move to New York and California? Was it low income taxes? Was it a big? it was uh, not
0: low income taxes. I mean, it 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 it, the taxes did not. I'm sorry, low state taxes. No, I understand. I understood exactly what you meant. No, New York was a place of opportunity that was growing to building up. But once it had built up and all of that advantage had occurred Uh, in Florida in 1947 was nothing. I mean, it was Arkansas. I mean, excuse me, I don't mean to insult Arkansas, but it was really a disaster. California in 1939 was nothing. I mean, it was it was World War Two. They really got California up and going. I mean, all the troops going over there and to fight in the Far East, and they really built California up to huge size. So all of these states had a lot of natural advantages. Let me just say this really clearly, Patrick, that taxes are not everything. They're far, far, far from it. Lots of other things matter besides taxes, but taxes are important and taxes are one of the items that people look to when they move. Now, if you look at just taxes, you will not get every person's move. Some people move because their girlfriends in a different state. Some people move because their company moved. I mean, all these things happen. But taxes are the common, systematic boom, ba-ba-boom, ba-ba-boom. And if you look at tax rates amongst the states, you will map out the fast-growing states and the slow-growing. You'll see that Michigan is declining like mad. Detroit in nineteen eighty, uh, 1950 had 1.85 million people. Today, it's below 600,000. Uh, Miami in 1950 had no one. Now it's bazillions. I mean, you know, all of these things are moving. I mean, just St. Louis and Kansas City and Cleveland, Ohio and Detroit and Chicago and all these cities that are just collapsing before our eyes in the high tax state, look, compare them with Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and these other, you know, it is a huge monumental earth movement, earthquake that's taken, driven in large part by taxes and free market regulations and pro-growth policies uh, that are really making a big difference. Last question here. Can
1: what happened to Detroit, Michigan, you know, where they went, like you said, 1.85 million to less than 600,000, and, you know, regulation after regulation after regulation where more government jobs were being offered than free enterprise, finally, the other guys are like, listen, we're out of here. It's a mess to be working here. Can what happened to Detroit happen to New York or, you know, Illinois, Chicago, or LA, California?
0: Yes, it can. Uh, Now, Detroit, it was easier to do. I mean, in 1950, Detroit was the Paris of North America. Mm -hmm. I mean, the train station there, my mom and dad used to take me by train up to Detroit. The train station there in Detroit was the Taj Mahal. I mean, it was just an amazing building. Uh, It can, but it takes a long time to destroy the capital stock, uh, and it takes a long time to rebuild it. And the problem is that once you've done those taxes, uh, the first five years you get rid of those taxes, you'll get no revenues because no one's coming back until they feel really certain about the long run. And that's the problem is it's like a ratchet. You can't undo it once you've done it. Okay. You two guys, two guys. One's a two-pack-a-day smoker. The other guy's never smoked a cigarette. Yep. Both of those guys have to go the next three months without any cigarettes. Okay. The guy who's never smoked says, okay, fine. What's what's the big deal? The smoker goes, ah! Goes to leave. Delim- That's what happens when you try to remove taxes, the income tax. It's almost impossible because you'll have huge shortfalls of revenue for the next three or four or five years. Your schools will have problems and all of that will. Now, if you never adopt an income tax, you'll do really well forever. And the problem is, is undoing the damage that these guys put in. One state has removed its income tax. And that was Alaska. I was up there with them when they discovered oil. They had this huge revenue surge and they were Mm. able to use those revenues to get rid of the income tax and the sales tax. But other than that, I've never seen any state get rid of it.
1: But that's a different story. I mean, Alaska is not a, it's not a duplicatable story. It's not applicable. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You're right. Totally right.
1: Final thoughts I'll give you here, Arthur, you know, my, my, uh, and and the topic I would want to hear from you on the final thoughts is, are you still as optimistic uh, as the idea of America for the average guy to work their tails off, have their dreams become a reality, the fact that this is still 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now is going to be the greatest country in the world. Or we've reached a point where, you know, look, we're a couple bad decisions away from ruining a great idea that we put together in 1776. Where are you at with that?
0: Look, I'm 81 years old, Patrick. You know, 30 years from now is a little bit long for me, but I'll still play with that one. Let, let me just say that. Uh, you know, a lot of these things are pessimistic for me. I sometimes wake up on the grumpy side of the life, and I, I'm not not optimistic. But when I stop and think about it for a second, in, 19, uh, in 1945, the highest marginal income tax rate in the U.S. was 94%. Today, it's 37%. That's not bad. When Jack Kennedy took office, the corporate rate, the highest corporate rate was 52%. Now it's uh, 15%. That's not too shabby. You know, if you look at the state income tax, state uh, death taxes, in 1976, one state alone did not have a death tax. That was Nevada. Today, I think 38 states have gotten rid of their death taxes. In 1957, uh, I think uh, 1957, two states had right to work. That was Arkansas and Florida. Today, half the states have right to work, which is wonderful. We've got the we've got the deregulation in the stock market. In 1973, it cost you 30 cents to trade a share of stock. Today, it's zero. Uh, and Jimmy Carter deregulated airlines totally. Now you've got much lower costs of air travel. A lot more people traveling, and it's safer. They decontrolled uh, they decontrolled trucking as well. Uh, they not only decontrolled trucking as well, but they've done a lot on negotiating discount for. It used to be against the law to sell products at a discount. Now we've got Walmart and Costco and all these other places that do discount. It's an amazingly better world. I mean, if you look at the, some of the wildlife, I mean, we, the bald eagle's back, the black-footed ferret's back, uh, Cuyahoga, uh, Cleveland, Ohio is pollution-free. Well, not quite pollution-free, but uh, the Hudson River, I mean, if you look at the LA Basin, when I lived there, you couldn't see Mount Baldy 99% of the time. Now you can see it everywhere. You used to have three stage smog alerts all the time. You know, we're making huge progress in a positive direction, and government is part of the solution. It's not just a problem, it's thinking about government correctly that will allow us to use government as a tool to create prosperity. You know, you want to collect your taxes in the least damaging fashion and you want to spend your money in the most beneficial fashion. When the damage done by the last dollar of taxes collected is a bit less than the benefit done by the last dollar spent, stop already. Any spending higher than that is too much, but any spending lower than that is too little. There is a correct role for government. These guys think that if good government's good, God, you should increase it tenfold. No. I mean, a little bit of salt on your eggs in the morning is great, but a whole pile of salt on it really tastes awful. And they need limitations on this. And that's what I'm hoping we discover as we move forward. I'm, I'm really hopeful that that will be the case.
1: I hope Jerry, uh, the Jerry Brown story inspires the Biden administration to contact even for some counsel on what could work and what can't work. Because if those ideas almost worked back in the days, minus the VP who would have chosen, I think some of those ideas, many people would like to see presented to the president. The name is Dr. Laffer. If you haven't read his book, Return to Prosperity, we're going to put the link below. Dr. Arthur Laffer, thank you once again for being a guest on Valuetainment.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much, Patrick.
1: Very different angles, right? Taxes, economy, future, how he feels about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, gold, inflation, not really an inflation. I thought it was fascinating. Want to know what you took away from it. Comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, my part one, with uh, Arthur Laffer was right here in 2018. We went a complete different angle. If you've not seen that, click over here, or another video I did a month ago titled "The History of Taxes," where I went very deep in the history of taxes. You may want to watch that as well. Take care, everybody. Bye, bye.